Thank you. Well, praise God. Welcome again. Welcome, Pastor Elia. Hallelujah. And if you're here for the first time, I know we have a few visitors this morning. Reach over to the seat beside you and grab one of those sheets. You're going to need it in a moment. We've been spending several weeks, I guess, about a month now or more looking at the books of the Bible. We're, we're going on a bit of a tour, on uh, just spending hopefully one week, maybe two, on each book of the Bible. And we've advanced to the book of Deuteronomy today. So I'll just pray for the word. Father, I pray that your word would be imparted to us today. Every one of us, Lord, we ask you to educate us, edify us. Grow us and move us on from strength to strength, from glory to glory. I pray as we study these scriptures that they will grow in our hearts and we will leave this place and and bring them to other people. That they will change our homes, our families, our workplaces, God. Come, Father. We look to you for feeding. We look to you for edification. Bless us and reveal your scripture to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9 and verse 5. I'll read a a famous scripture there. Deuteronomy, chapter 9 and verse 5. Deuteronomy 9, 5. This morning's message is what I would call a life message. It's one of those messages, I guess, that if you heed it, if you obey it, it can truly change the rest of your days. I believe there's issues contained in this that can change everything if we will hear them and obey them. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 5. Famous piece of scripture where God is speaking to Moses. And Moses thinks God has chosen him because of who he is, really. And God puts his mind straight. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of the land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Basically, God said to Moses, it's not because of your integrity that I'm going to use you. It's not because of your goodness or your righteousness that I'm going to do certain things through you. And we'll come back to that in a moment. The word Deuteronomy means second law. Deutero means second. Nomos means law. And Deuteronomy is the book where Moses, for the second time, had to repeat everything that he had already said. He goes back over the Ten Commandments. He goes back over all the laws. Why? (laughs) Let's see who's been paying attention. Why? Because they were all dead. Because God has sworn by Himself not one of the 600,000 would enter the land. It's important that you realize that, folks. Look at me. A whole new generation has raised up. Moses is no longer talking to the same people. He's talking to a much younger 600,000 fighting men had died. Because they didn't rise to the challenge that was before them. And God was greatly displeased with them and said, not one of you will therefore have the honor of entering this land. You will all die. And a whole new generation has raised up. And so Deuteronomy, second time, second law, for the second time, 
Moses repeats what he had already said. This is a new batch. We as a church are very accustomed to receiving a new batch. Every year a new batch of student comes. And they're incredibly different. Would you agree, Pui? You never... Folks, maybe you've never had this experience. But every year we receive a fresh batch of students. And you never know what that generation is going to be like until Saturday morning. (laughs) It was just a few weeks ago. We all meet over at the church and we do breakfast and in come the generation. And I tell you, this is my sixth year, I think, of receiving students. Some years, that group will walk in and they will be so cheeky. Sorry, I'm just telling the truth. So cheeky, so cocky, that they don't care who you are. I don't care about your church and they don't listen. They don't want to know anybody who's invited them. Just enjoy the food and go. Other years, it's completely different. They're very gregarious, very a bit like this year, very friendly. Very good generation. Very good batch. You see? And if you, it's a kind of a quirky thing. I can't quite understand it. But we're, you know, we're affected by the pressures and the atmospheres that are about when we were born. I mean, what, what was your generation like? You see, generations differ. And I've got to look at the problems of my generation. And think about when I was born. And think about the typical things that have beset me. Or beset people like me. People of my age. Because generations differ. If you look at the UK. And you go back, say, to the 1950s. Again, this is a sad thing to say. But it's probably true. The 1950s was probably the best generation that this country ever seen. Post-war. Bombing stopped. Suffering changes people. It either makes them very bitter or so much better. Somebody said if a person hasn't suffered, they're not worth knowing. It's a generalization and an extreme statement, but you know, I know what they mean. And the generation that came out of the war were lucky to be alive. They, they felt, you know, pleased to be alive. My father died. My brother died in the war. But I'm still here. And it changed a generation. And the 1950s was a good time to live. In fact, there was a lot of salvation during that time. Where Billy Graham and others came through the country and found that people were now willing because they realized that life and death a little bit quicker than I thought after those bombs dropped. And that created a good generation. Pay attention. What about the 1960s? Wow. Wow. So quickly. So quick you forgot. Your grandfather was blown to pieces for freedom. And within five minutes, you have forgotten to be grateful to your God, to be grateful for the freedoms that you've got. A new generation came. Isn't it a bit like Jonah? You know, you see Jonah going to Nineveh and preaching the gospel and the whole city, 120,000 people get saved. Do you know within one generation that city was lost? Their children did not follow through. That's the truth. Nineveh went right back to, to barbarism and the great pyramids of skulls that they used to put at the gates of their city. So I need to think about, because I had, you know, fantastic parents, excellent parents, war generation, those who came through the war. In fact, my dad came through both wars. Hallelujah. And that changed him and made him deeply grateful. 
And some of that, I hope, rubbed off on me. Who raised you? What was their generation like? What has your generation been like? How do the things and the ways that you were raised actually contradict Scripture? Because I come from a batch. I come from a batch, a batch of people that were born. For me, it was Belfast, a bit like we heard last Sunday night. That was just fantastic last Sunday night. We had nearly as many people attending last Sunday night as we had last Sunday morning. That was one great testimony. Absolutely blew me away. But I grew up in what Jim Tran was sharing with us. I grew up in the bombs and bullets of Belfast. And that made some of my friends become murderers. One of my guy lived just two doors down from me. Killed three people because they killed his sister, you know. And it becomes a murderous time. And I thank God my father safeguarded us from that, protected us from going wrong and, and, and imputed to us, imparted to us values that were different from my generation. And that's what Moses is doing. Moses has seen all of those he was responsible for. Imagine that. Imagine you had two batches of children. Well, Moses had this whole batch and they were so bad. Their attitude was so bad. And Moses was a good guy, man. One of the best guys in the Bible. And God judges the, the, the crowd. He doesn't judge Moses, actually, only one small bit that he didn't get to enter the promised land. But God judges that whole crowd. And all the children grow up and they get to their 20s and 30s, which is where Deuteronomy comes in. And in the book of Deuteronomy, dear, dear Moses stands up and he says, Do you know what, guys? Let me give you some intergenerational wisdom. Let me give you some intergenerational insight. Because just being born as you are, you'll never see this. But of course, Moses spanned them both. And that's why we need to listen to our elders. And that's why I say, if you will but listen, this is, it's an odd message. It's a life changer. It's something that you can weed out certain things that will block your future, wreck your relationships, because it's key. Key stuff in Deuteronomy. It's the last book, by the way. It's the sealing book of the Torah. The first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were the first five books. Key books. And so it closes with some very important points. Let's look at them. I've given you them on a list. The ten key attitudes that Moses worked in and worked through in order to lead the people. And they were incredibly difficult attitudes to maintain. The first one. Optimism. If you're an optimist, put your hand up. How many optimists do we have here? Oh, come on, folks. <laughs> Two. God help us. How many pessimists do we have here? You can't be one or one or the other. Okay? Okay. I'm not an optimist. I don't think it's a wise thing to be, to be honest. I think optimists get in as much trouble in life as pessimists do. It's problematic, I'll explain. My father was an optimist. And my mother was a pessimist. And so I became a realist. Alright, that's absolutely true. My dad was a complete pessimist. Everything was going to be okay. My mother was the opposite. It's not going to be okay. And so I grew up with these two things in either ear. And you really do become a realist. And I think that's the best way to be. Look at this statement here. This is what God said to the people. He said, here is the promised land. I'm going to give it to you. Now go and fight for it. Now when a... When an optimist reads that statement, what do you think they read? Here's the promised land, I'm giving it to you. Whoop, hey, come on. 
When a pessimist reads that statement, what do you think they read? Go and fight for it. Right? But when a realist reads that statement, what do you think they read? Here's the promised land. I'm giving it to you. Now go and fight for it. And so I would much prefer, having seen, you know, through life and certainly through ministry experience, having seen the tragedy of optimism, it, it, it does become, you know, a little bit more difficult than you might think. In fact, on the back of your notes, just turn your notes over. Unrealistic expectations. Remember when we looked at this, when we were studying life after love, marriage. These are just statements off the top of my head that I wrote down at that time. They're the typical things that people say to me or will say before they get married, right? But this is optimism talking, you see, not realism. Let's take them one at a time. These are typical statements engaged people or people who are going to get married say. Number one, I'm very unhappy as a single person. I can't wait to get married, so at least I'll be happy. Quiet. <laughs> Okay, realistic or optimistic? I think it's optimistic because, please look up. Fact. If you're unhappy as a single person, you're going to be unhappy as a married person, my friend. It doesn't work like that. You're just a, married, you're just a single person got married with the same amount of problems, maybe more. So it's an unrealistic, optimistic statement. Secondly, the woman says, my fiancé doesn't pray, doesn't tithe, but after we're married, I'll sort him out. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Join the club, guys, of women trying to change their man after marriage. Big mistake. Too optimistic. Foolishly optimistic. Things are so financially tough right now, I can't wait to get married so that I can have some money. Now, come on, folks. <laughs> Jim, true or false? <laughs> false. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> it's very false. Because married life produces a hundred bills that you didn't see coming, especially when kids start popping up. Right? Number four, I'm so lonely now. At least after I get married, that won't be a problem. Oh, that's a sad one. It's a sad one, folks. Any idea how many married people come to the pastor because they're lonely? How many women? How many men have got nothing in their lives because they've lost the relationship with the wife? You think marriage is going to sort that out? You're kidding yourself. That's optimism. Gone crazy. There's a bit of work to do. Number five. I've been so sexually frustrated, at least I can have all the sex I want once I'm married. Now, can all the married men say, Yeah, man! Oh! Well, that tells a story, doesn't it? <laughs> not true. Do you know what, folks? It's not our topic for this morning. You have a good relationship with your wife. And you will have perfectly natural, normal sex. But you don't have a relationship and you're in trouble. You're actually in, a, in an abusive relationship if that's the case. It actually becomes abusive, in my opinion, and destructive. But if you have a healthy relationship, nothing is more natural and more normal and more healing and therapeutic than the ministry of sex. Okay? It is quiet in here now. Really quiet. Okay, number six. I'm glad the marriage classes have ended so we can just get on with it. Yes. Optimistic again, thinking we know it all. Wrong. Number seven. I thought the marriage I was entering was ready to go. I didn't realize I was going to have to put it together myself. Again, I just want you to see, folks, optimism is not all that it's cracked up to be. And in my opinion, I've met just as many people with trouble being overly optimistic as I have with people with pessimism because the real place to be truly 
it is in realism. Did Moses enter the promised land? No. He was an optimist, you see. Who entered the promised land? Joshua. Why? Because Joshua was the realist. Joshua understood the, the, the fullness of the problems and beat them, overcame them. So get into realism is what point one is about. Number two, Moses had a very high commitment to excellence. In fact, turn to, to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man must wear woman's clothing. For the Lord detests anyone who does this. What's that called? Transvestites, right? Amazing thing, folks. Take a look at this list here. God was warning. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> this is thousands of years ago. And here's Moses just about to enter in to the promised land, to Canaan. And guess what the problems in Canaan are? Spiritualism. The occult. Transvestites. Homosexuals. And lawlessness. Now, if you were looking at the negatives only, you could make the same list for Scotland. Myself and Jeanette, you know, we were over in Woodlands Road. There's actually a group of transvestites meet over in Woodlands Road. And, in fact, there was one particular person, hope he's not here this morning, <laughs> one particular person came to this church a few times. He's a guy, you know. And I spoke to him a couple of times. He used to, you know, hover around at the back. He was quite anonymous. And the next time I saw him, he had women's clothes on and breasts. I thought that, 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 that's not right. <laughs> that's not normal. Hey, hey lad, where'd you get, where'd you get the, the things from? <laughs> See, and this is, folks, it's around the corner. We were down there on Friday afternoon and the guy in front of us in the queue, in the queue, had like red, black leather boots, red dress, maybe, you know, black and red thing going on, you know, and he's standing there. And I said to Jeanette, hey, that's a man. And she said, shut up, stupid man it's a woman i said it's a man it's a big butch why are they always butch they're massive big men seem to anyway become transvestites listen five minutes walk from this church there's a group of people like these now they need to get saved they need to find the lord i want you to understand something folks we can go all the way back to the book of deuteronomy and you think this is not relevant to you this is highly relevant is homosexuality a problem it's a massive problem it's a huge problem today. Moses had the same problems. The same pro There's nothing truly, truly there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes. Nothing new under the sun. It just changes its guise, but it's the same problems. The occult. It's the same problems that we have today. Just excuse the pun, dressed up in a different way. Right? But the same problems. The same issues. Right? Now, how did Moses overcome that? What did he do? And it's point two. He made a commitment in his own heart to excellence, to sticking with it through thick and thin. That he was going to apply the word of God in the circumstance, in Canaan, and by doing that with the people, he would create, if you like, the kingdom of God. That's how he did it. A commitment to standards. Folks, see, I think we miss it because we get so distracted by the world in which we live. It's a beautiful world. Remember when we studied the fruit and the food a couple of weeks ago? You see the beauty of food? Lovely apples and oranges, and bananas and the, the beautiful fruit 
and the trees and the nuts and the sky. You see this world? It, it is beautiful. It, it's startlingly beautiful. But you know what? <laughs> this world was made for good people only. It's not made for bad people. God's made a fantastic thing here. A wonderful, awesome creation. But it's only been made for good and holy people. He called it the holy land. Actually, the whole world one day will be holy land. Now, at the moment, because of the fall, we have weeds and flowers growing up together. And God says, okay, just wait a minute. But you know what, folks? Please listen. One day, there will only be, inverted commas, good people left. In other words, the only people in heaven will be those to whom God has imparted his own righteousness, those whom he has saved by the cross, those who were born again, who repented from their sin, and they will live in the holy land forever. It just doesn't look like that now. The apostles said to Jesus, shall we go out and chop down the way? No, just leave it. Very patient God. But I promise you, I promise you this. One day, maybe not too far away either, there will be no sin on this earth. And this awesome planet will only have the feet of those who came through the blood of Jesus on it. Every single thing that is sin or off sin or sinners will be removed. And the very goal that God set out to achieve in Genesis, he will achieve. He will have his Eden. He will have his relationship with human beings. That is, those who humble themselves and get saved. Now, there's several of you here this morning who are not born again. Jesus said, not me, Jesus said, unless a person is born again, they will never enter heaven, that holy land. You will never see it. You will be kept out because he's a holy God. Now, God has done everything for you. He sent his son in the likeness of man, in human flesh, to die on a cross, to take away your sin. But you have your part to play, and that is, we call that repentance. You must turn from everything you know to be wrong. You don't need anybody to tell you that, really. You've got that already by your conscience. Turn from everything you know to be wrong and put your faith in Jesus Christ and His death on your part. That is the only way that you will ever see that holy land. That's it. And keep a good grip on your Bible because it's the only thing you can rely on. So Moses made a commitment to optimism in his case, and he made certain mistakes, and that, that's fine. He made a commitment to excellence, and that saw him through. What was the third one? And this is a biggie. His confidence, I think he's one of the best examples of, of, of putting your confidence in God in the whole Bible. Now, this church, particularly this congregation, we have a very high level of people with an enormous amount of qualifications. We've got doctors, surgeons, lawyers, goodness knows what. There's 80% of you are, are, are well qualified. Now, and congratulations to the graduates who passed this week. No problem. But, <laughs> but, please folks, please, don't ever, ever overestimate your qualification. 
Okay? I don't care how many letters you've got after your name. I have met many people with degrees and many doctors who have been brainless idiots. Sorry, but I have. People who can't look after the family, they can't look after the home, they can't run their finances and they think they're smart because you went and did something. You need to, you need to listen a minute. Do you know what Paul says his qualifications were like? What did he say they were? Go on. Done. Done. Okay? Now, amen. You do the very best you can. And you get a good job. And you study hard. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, you had better, for the rest of your life, understand what a qualification is and what a qualification isn't. For a start, Paul says this. Not many of you were smart originally. Not many people are naturally smart. Okay? They can be driven to study. But not many people are naturally smart. They apply themselves because of the pressures of family or culture or generation. And they learn certain things and then it becomes a way. But not naturally. Even amongst ourselves here, there's not too many of us that I would call naturally smart. Leanne. Right? Leanne's very smart. Naturally. Tom. Pastor Tom. Naturally smart. But most of us, in fact, I've got three groups of people. There are those who have natural smarts, if you like. Natural intelligence. Yeah? And there's, then there's those who just go and get qualified. There's those who, who do that, but they may not be smart people at all. And there's thousands of them. And the last type is those who are neither smart or qualified. Hello? That's me. I'm in that category. I'm in the third category. I have no qualifications. I failed everything at school. I had no interest. And after school, I continued to have no qualifications. I got Bible college, of course. Fine, no problem. But in terms of smarts, no. I was neither naturally smart nor academically smart. And my parents did not push me that way. Okay? But most of you will fit into the second category. You may not be particularly naturally smart. You might think you are, but you may not be particularly naturally smart. Um, because that, that, but that will be because you've been influenced by getting a qualification. And because you've taken one part of your life, which is the academic part, and you've made the whole of that. Well, that's a big mistake. How's your relationship with your wife? I'll tell you how smart you are. How's your tithe and your faith pledging? I'll tell you how smart you are. How's the prayer meeting going? How's your family altar? I'll tell you how smart you are. So please don't kid yourself. Because this has massive implication, folks. I said at the beginning, if you listen this morning, it can bless the rest of your life. Because you won't put your foot in the, in the mistakes and the pitfalls and the foot stumbling that, that Moses and many others did. Understand what a qualification is and what a qualification isn't. My, I come from a family that are qualified through the roof. The, I mean, everything. They were first at everything and then there was me. <laughs> God saved the best to last, mom. I failed everything. And I was completely different from the rest of my family. And yet when I was in my 20s, I remember my mom once just quiet, just out of the blue. She just happened to say, Michael, do you know what? You're the most balanced of the whole family. The most balanced and the most happy, I guess, of the whole lot. Hallelujah. Amen. I guess that's realism. Realism. You see this, if you get uh, the wrong idea of qualifications, what that does is it's going to affect you. Next slide, please. Take a look at these three things. It will affect you in, in particular ways. It will, it will definitely create a pride in you. And this is a pride that Moses didn't have. 
And that's why I'm bringing it up now. Moses did not make this mistake. He didn't have confidence in himself. Who did he have confidence in? God. He was the meekest man in the whole earth. Moses really, really got this right. If you get this wrong, it will make you proud. And proud people develop a sense of entitlement. And that's what makes them unhappy in life. Right? Now, they, 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 these are sad things because they think they're special, you see. You think you're special because of something you have been qualified in. Look at the back of your notes a moment. I've given you one of the best explanations of self-confidence I could find because it's very difficult to articulate this. But listen to this. I thought this was great. The Sin of Self-Confidence by Jim Norman. Oh my goodness, how can self-confidence be a sin? Well, self-confidence is a sin because Jesus said that we are incapable of doing anything apart from him. The sin of self-confidence is the sin of pride and an inflated ego. Self-confidence, from the sin perspective, involves believing that we are superior and better than others. Self-confidence embraces an attitude of entitlement and claims to have many rights that supersede the rights of others. In other words, thinking that you're special for some reason. Faith and dependence on Jesus Christ is the only basis Christians have for confidence from a biblical perspective. If we can do anything on our own, we are not allowing Jesus to live his life through us. And on that basis, self-confidence is a serious sin and blocks the Holy Spirit from filling us. Well said, amen? I think that's very well succinctly put. Now let me explain something. And if you've got spiritual ears this morning, you need to open them right now. Because this is, this is a key one. I want you to understand. Jeanette is special in my eyes. I'm special in God's eyes. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with that. You're special in God's eyes. But you know what the Bible says? Do not be wise in your own eyes. And there's no problem with you being special in God's eyes. There's no problem with you, your husband or your wife or your child being special in your eyes. But there is a big problem, friend, when you become special in your own eyes. And that is the sin of pride. And that will destroy your relationships and your life. And you need to get it out. You understand? We're all special in God's eyes, but that's not what meekness shows us or teaches us in Moses. And entitlement, if you go through life, as many people do, I meet them every day, people who constantly think they're being ripped off or that life owes them something, not realizing um, you're actually the same as everybody else. <laughs> A sense of entitlement ruins men and makes them unhappy and destroys relationships because they can never get enough out of relationships. They're always expecting something else because they're special. Problem. This is the opposite of Moses. Moses was the meekest man. He didn't think he was anything special. He knew God loved him, but he also had a very good grip on who he was. Was Moses qualified? Absolutely. University of Helios, right? Cleopatra's needle. We looked at it a few weeks ago. Oh, he stood out amongst his brothers. He, was a, he went back from the university in Helios to a bunch of Hebrew slaves who had done nothing but break up soil all day. But he was still meek, still broken. Even with all the opportunity to become proud, he never became proud. 
And that's why he's considered the meekest man. Moses knew what his qualification was. And he knew what his qualification wasn't. But most importantly, he knew who God was. And he knew that he needed God. Listen again, please. It seems to me that God predominantly uses two types of people. Those who have no abilities naturally. Okay? And in terms of self-confidence, well, you know the story. Moses lacked a lot of confidence, right? He said to God with seven different things, reasons why he didn't want to go. He lacked confidence for sure. But it seems to me there's two types of people that God puts his hand on to use. The first type are those with no abilities at all. Like your Moses. And then there's another type, like your Paul's. Paul was incredibly smart. Right? He said, if anybody has reason to boast in the flesh, it's me. Remember? Because Paul was highly educated, stood out amongst his brothers. And yet he said, I, I, I've learned this one thing. I boast in nothing, absolutely nothing. For I have learned that the wisdom of men is nothing but foolishness. Hallelujah. So there's two types of people and they both encounter different types of problems. Each have their own cross to carry. One has to crucify pride and the other has to crucify fear. And I fall into that category. I, where, where's Joe? I feel very like Joe. You know, Joe, where is he? Give us a wave, Joe. Hello, Joe. Right at the back. <laughs> I've been working a lot with Joe recently. I see a lot of me in him. Joe has no self-confidence. Well, why are you using him to preach then? <laughs> why does he lead the worship? Because he's anointed. Because he has a gift that's not himself. And I see so much there of me. I, 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 when I'm with him, we talk a lot. I remember myself as a young man, terrified, frightened, no qualifications. When I got called, I'm sorry I could cry because I, I went to my parents. I knew I was called. I didn't know what to do. But I went home and I said, I've got no, I've got no ability. I've got nothing. And I never forget the words of my mom. She just said, well, you must have a vocation. This is the only word she knew, calling. You must have a calling then. It will be okay. Just trust God. I don't know how to trust God. You see, that was my cross. That's my problem. Same as you, Joe. Same thing. How to tentatively walk forward with nothing of yourself. I, I, to be honest, I would rather have that than be smart. <laughs> because I think it's hard to cross. I, think it, I, I don't want to wake up every day and have to swallow my pride and crucify my pride. Paul called it a thorn in the flesh. Because he was superior to everyone around him. Inverted commas, you understand. He called, I've got this thorn in my flesh, I can't get rid of it, I'm trying to, 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 to humble myself. Moses didn't have that problem, he had a different problem. Right? It was fear because of his meekness. So, certain commitments and life attitudes that you can develop that will help you get through life, certainly if you're going to follow God. Optimism, yes, but remember, realism, I think, is more important. A commitment to excellence, a commitment to being confident in God, not self-confident. Number four, joy, and, and I'll just go through the rest of them briefly. Joy is a fantastic thing. I was just trying to figure out what joy is and what joy isn't. But one thing for sure, Moses maintained his joy or he never would have got through the, 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 an enormous 40-year period that he had to get through. Do you know what joy is? Joy, the joy within you that you feel is, is undoubtedly a foretaste of where you're going. When you're born again and you feel that in your spirit, that's a fantastic thing. It's a real confirmation. In fact, people talk to, come and ask us about assurance, you know. I'm not sure of my salvation. Well, one thing that I would say definitely would describe assurance is joy. You know when you get that joy feeling? You know when you get that in your gut? The joy of the Lord is in you? 
you know you're saved. Amen? Because you can feel that and it's the life of Christ. It's the life of Jesus Christ ticking over inside you. Wonderful thing. Remember, it's not happiness. It's quite a different thing. But it, 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 it's, it's manifold and very important. Remember, the Bible says that's where your strength comes from. The joy of the Lord is your? Lose joy and you lose strength. Lose joy and you will lose your assurance. And if you lose your joy for long enough, people start coming saying, Pastor, I think I've lost my salvation. There you go. There you go. Because you lost your joy. And when you have that feeling in you, it just makes you, you know, know that God loves you, that God is in your life. Amen? Number five, integrity. Not a subject that's easily understood. What is integrity and what isn't integrity? Excuse, excuse this is very low. I don't know if you can see it. But these are two icebergs. I've used this example before, but I think it's very important because not many people understand perhaps what integrity is. Integrity isn't doing everything right. A person with great integrity is not a person who never does anything wrong, Mr. or Mrs. Perfect. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are no such people. It's a fallacy. A person with integrity is very simple. It's someone whose public presentation is the same as their private life. That's it. Integral. Integrity. Integrated. Whole. And the best way to think of that, I think, is to take a look at this. Two icebergs. Take a look at the first iceberg. Here's the sea. And the top of the iceberg is separated from the main body. It's disintegrated doesn't have integrity. So what you can see, what I can see of you here this morning, is actually separated from the real you. And then there's another iceberg. And what you can see is actually connected to the rest of you, the rest of the person. You see, folks, a person with integrity is not perfect. It's just someone who presents the real them. If you try and live this life, you're going to get sick. You're going to get stressed out because the human psyche is not built to live a double life. You can't present one thing here on Sunday and Friday and Tuesday and be a different person at home. You're going to get sick. Mentally sick, physically sick, you're going to be stressed out. I repeat God did not make human beings to be duplicitous. That's not the way you've been made. You will get ill if you continue with this. You must at some point become the whole you, the real you, and start to become comfortable with presenting that to people. This is why Jesus was a great healer. Because people could come to him and be accepted just the way they were. And that healed them. Not having to be Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect, but the integrity that they gained from being with Jesus was an acceptance of themselves by someone else. When he accepted them, it basically enabled them to accept themselves. And some of the testimonies we've had, particularly on Sunday nights, have been fantastic. Some of you guys should take a trip to Dublin sometime. <laughs> Generations, cultures, cultures are so different. You go into the church in Dublin and the Irish, the Southern Irish are a particular type. 
<laughs> you, you, you need to go. It's one of those things. You had to be there to understand it. You need to go. Because the Irish have this certain way about them. When you meet them, they tell you the whole story. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Boom! And when you kind of go, okay, fair enough. You know, they, they, that's just the culture. That's the way it is. And, and they're actually very good on certain things. And this is one of them. Very easy. A lot of grace in, in Ireland. It's very easy for anyone to be accepted just the way they are. With the whole story. Of who they are. My wife's divorced. She had a marriage. She was married before. Things went drastically wrong. She got divorced. Have you got any idea the number of people when they hear that can't cope? What? Oh goodness me. Because, <laughs> well, I won't go into it this morning. But we should go into it. Because there's an enormous amount of people divorced in the church today. But, you see, Jesus accepts you. Jesus accepts you. And that's what he would do. Jesus would simply pass through a crowd. Somebody came to me the other day and said, I saw someone smoking outside the church. Uh, yeah? So? Well, what are you going to do about them? We're going to do hang them? Shall we? <laughs> Tomorrow? I saw someone smoking outside the church. Right? Well, what do you want me to do about it? Oh, what, what, uh, sit down. Calm down. <laughs> what do you want me to do about it? Their sin is public. Your sin is private. So what's your problem? Have you got a sin? We don't need to go there. But you have, you do suffer from sin, don't you? Do you want to tell me what the sin is? Do you want to come up? No, no, okay. Okay, we'll leave the smoker alone then, shall we? Because if you start throwing stones, you're going to find that some of them are going to hit you. You start pointing a finger and you're going to find that there's more pointing back at you. Amen. Now, we will go to the person, and please remember, the guy who smokes doesn't want to smoke. He's an addict. He wants to get off it. Jesus is patient with those in temptation, right? Struggling, and I know, because I smoked for 10 years. Hallelujah. I was able to quit that in extremely easy and extremely quick, because God delivered me from it. But don't judge other people. And that's what integrity is. Um, the, the church needs to have integrity. That doesn't mean we do everything right. It doesn't mean you're perfect. You misunderstand what integrity is. Integrity is accepting the person as they are. Mistakes and all, problems and all. Do you know that Moses married a Gentile? Do you know that? And then he ended up leading the... You've got to laugh. Moses went outside of the kingdom, married a lost person, and then brought that wife back into the kingdom. They could have stoned him and her. Wow. God. I mean, the law, you know, you're not allowed to marry a Gentile. How come you appoint Moses to marry a... What's going on, Lord? And God would basically say, because their hypocrisy makes me sick. And I want to show them that those who I accept, I dare you to reject. You can say amen there. You understand, this is grace. The law, the law came through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I thank God that we're not under the law. So Moses was really good on those things. The integrity bit, he truly got it. He wasn't duplicitous. Top marks for that in his life. Sixthly, enthusiasm. We need to understand what enthusiasm is. And this, if there was a point for today, I would say that this is a point for today. A prophetic point for the church today. 
Because it's the last days, folks. It's the last days. It's the end, the end of the end of the end. The earth is winding up. And one thing I will say, the bride of Christ will rise up from the earth and will meet the Lord in the air. Look at me a moment. We're about to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that wedding will not be a shotgun wedding. God is, Jesus is not going to come back. Where's my bride? Out. Come on. Out you go. That's not, it isn't going to happen. Okay? It's not a shotgun wedding. It's not going to be a wedding of force. And if anything has changed prophetically in the church in the last couple of years, it's this point here. And I meet with a group of about 60 pastors, but once a month up in Perth. And it's very interesting to hear the big picture. One of the leaders of the group there is a guy called Ian Duffy. He's a heart surgeon. He leads a huge church in uh, Aberdeen, about 600. And Ian got up one week, and he's one of our leaders, a man I would enormously respect. And he, he, he got up about two years ago, and I didn't expect to hear this from him. Uh, he said this, Do you know what, guys? And these were all pastors. Do you know what I'm going to do for the rest of my days? You know, if somebody doesn't come on Sunday, I'm not going to go and get them. And you know, if they stop attending cell group, let them go. Ian. And then Pastor Rick came in. And he didn't say it in the same words, but he said the same thing. He said, "Can can you feel that? I think it's time to change what we were doing. And Rick comes from Singapore, highly, you know, disciplined and ordered society. And some people, you see, please listen carefully. Some people, the only thing they have ever known is either force, you're going to church. You're going to church, child. Force or discipline. It's one or the other. When they're a child, you're going to church. By the ear. You know the story. You're going And so their relationship with God is based on either force when they were at home and then discipline from their pastor. Where were you? Where were you? But as we get near the end of time, things have started to change. And then another pastor would get up another month and say, do you know what? I just just don't feel right about dragging them in to church anymore. Something's changing. And do you know what's changing, folks? Well, this is my opinion. And it's, it's a marmalade sandwich for another day, as they say. Do you know what it is? It's Matthew 24, 25. It's the parable of the ten virgins. And I believe I can see prophetically in what's happening the separation of those who voluntarily go with God and keep their lamps burning and those who are being snatched away. It's early days. It's early days. But over the next... 5, 10, 15 years, I believe the parable of the ten virgins is going to become a reality. And we will be left with a church who come because of enthusiasm. Because of their love for God. God doesn't want a shotgun wedding. And the bride in the last days, remember Esther, six months of treatment before the wedding. There was preparation for the wedding. Right? And I believe there is certain treatment going on right now in the church. And my advice to you is get into the flow of it. Find it and get into it. I'll move quickly here because we're out of time. Seventhly, cordiality. And that word comes from cardia, the same word we use for cardiac. 
And, and, and Moses was cordial. He exercised cardia. And what we mean by that is the things that he did, he did out of his heart. And I don't know why you do what you do. You ask yourself that. Why do you do? Why do you pursue what you pursue? Are you building yourself a reputation? Is it ambition? What is it? Why do you do what you do? Well, I know why Moses did what he did. He did it for two things. He loved people. He definitely loved people. And he loved God. And we have to salute him. I, you know, when we get to heaven, go and see Moses. Right? Holy Moses. He, 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 it was absolutely fantastic for his enduring power. And that's point eight. Perseverance. He, he persevered through some of the most terrible times. Now, God was pretty severe with those who opposed him. But nonetheless, Moses himself had to persevere. Look, you can get a good attitude for two years or four years. Try 40. Right? Try 40 with a load of people who complain all day. All right, try 40. Try keeping a good attitude. Perseverance. I'm not talking about perseverance. Moses persevered in his attitude. Moses maintained a good attitude through all that time and was still not judgmental at the end. Wow. Absolutely fantastic. And that tells me that it's possible for me to do that too. And you. Amen. Number nine, humility. He called himself the meekest man in the earth. And I actually don't doubt that that was true. You can read the books. First five books were written by Moses. But Moses definitely exercised humility. God said to him, it's not because of your righteousness that I'm going to drive these people out. But rather because I'm mad at them because of their wickedness. Do you know that the war, most of you here won't, would not have been alive through that time. Some of you will have been. That the war in Britain was a terrible time. And the government didn't know what to do. That Germany had seen victory across all of Europe and it looked like France was going to fall. It was a dreadful time. America had not yet quite got involved. And the UK put all their hopes in one man. What was his name? Winston Churchill. And they had a meeting in London. And he was appointed the Prime Minister. And he was appointed Lord of the Admiralty. In other words, he was given authority over all the armed services in Britain. And in his memoirs, he says this. On the day that they asked me to be the Prime Minister, and I put my uniform on, and I was the Lord of the Admiralty, I hated the war, as did everyone. We were horrified. But they appointed me, we had the ceremony, I had my smart uniform on. And I was so proud. So proud. And he said, they dropped him off in a secret location in a country hotel. And he went into his room and he sat down on the bed and he was so proud. And then he said, I noticed a little book down in the bedside cabinet. It was a Bible, a Gideon Bible. And I thought, big task ahead of me. I wonder would God have anything to say to me? And he opened the Bible Look at what he read. Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 5. This is what he said he read. He opened the Bible, flipped it open, and he read from the book we're studying today. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 5. He read these words. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land. 
But it is, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know, Churchill says this. He said that he felt as he sat on that bed, he shook that Bible, and he felt that God Almighty had spoken straight to him and humbled him. And he suddenly realized, do you know what? We're going to win. We're going to win the war. Of that, I'm sure. But I'm also sure of this. God doesn't need me. He didn't choose me because of my integrity, because of my righteousness. He could have chosen someone else. It is God who's going to win the war. And built on that humility, built on that solid rock, Winston went on to lead this nation into victory. Hallelujah. Don't underestimate the power of humility and the danger of pride. Pride comes before a fall. And lastly, Moses exercised generosity of spirit. Enormously so, folks. And I hope that that is something that we as a church exude all our days. I ask you to bring in an offering and folks, we really need some big offerings. We'll take up a faith pledge in a few weeks' time. But one of the reasons we keep on getting into trouble is because we, we give. We don't have a building of our own. And people chase me around. Why don't you buy a building? Why don't you store up all the money? Let's keep all the church's money and spend it on ourselves. Well, we're not going to do that as long as I'm the pastor here. Plenty of churches with big fancy buildings and no heart. Plenty of churches with fancy buildings and doing nothing in the earth. And we can do a lot more. But I thank God for what we are doing. And people make judgments like that because they don't understand or maybe don't listen or perceive what's happening. Do you know one of the places we give to? We can't afford to give anything because we don't even have enough to pay ourselves, never mind anything else. But you can't say no. How can I say no to Armenia when the pastor there could get his head chopped off? And he goes to church every week with his wife and his children and he could be killed. How can we say no and buy ourselves something fancy? Come on! Generosity of spirit. And Moses showed that from the first of the 40 to the last. That his heart was for the people and for the nation. And ours will be too. You know, I have never, we send many missionaries out, but I've never sent a missionary out to their death. Never done that. Looks like we're going to just about do that soon. Because, I, I, this is recorded, you can leave the recording because I won't mention any names. But with one country that we're working with, the last two missionaries to go into this particular zone have disappeared. They're actually in the Barnabas magazine there a couple of months ago. They disappeared. So there's no Christians in this particular area. Two Christians went in, gone. Nobody knows where they are. And I have sat with a woman, a Christian woman, who's going to go to that place and be the light. Jesus. And all we got to do is give. That's all. Just give. Just sacrifice a bit. We're going to pay that woman, this church, you. We're going to pay for that church plant and we'll send her. So how can we spend our money? And I know many pastors with big fat bank accounts, believe me, six figures and all the rest of it. Telling us at pastors meetings, oh, I've got 300,000, I've got 500. I don't care what you've got, to be honest. I'm not interested. Have you any idea what's happening as the, as the time winds up? 
For heaven's sake, the world's about to end and all you want to do is build your church account? Go and tell your people that everything you see will end. It's coming to a conclusion. And let's put our money where our mouth is, where our preaching is, and plant churches. Moses exercised generosity of spirit, and by that I mean he was outward focused, never on himself and certainly not for his own ends. And that should be our heart, now and always. Let me invite the worship team back. Just stay seated a moment, and let's just pray these principles into our hearts. Father, we thank you that you are a good, good God. And that we live in a land of, of, of such peace and, and safety, really. I know we've got a few problems, but nothing in comparison to others. I pray you would make us grateful. Make us a generation, Lord, that remembers who you are and your great grace to us. Let us not be a bad batch. Let us be a good batch, an honorable batch that know you and follow you. And God, I pray for these life principles, these things to live by for realism, that every person here would be realistic and not overly optimistic or inflated in that way, but have their feet on the ground and achieve the goals like Joshua. And we make a commitment to excellence and to put confidence in you, not in ourselves. May the joy of the Lord be your strength. May the joy of the Lord be your strength. And God, for integrity and enthusiasm, cordiality and perseverance, Raise them up in us for humility and generosity of spirit. Would you preserve us and keep us focused on the kingdom at all times? Hallelujah. Let's stand.